0: All right. Good morning. What happened? Good morning. morning. For some reason, we always get it right the second time. I don't know why. I don't know why. If you don't mind turning your Bible to Luke chapter seven, I want to take a look at the uh, parable that Jesus gives there in Luke chapter seven. But we'll have to consider the context. The context is important for understanding the parable itself. And so we'll begin our reading in Luke chapter 7, verse number 36. Luke chapter 7, verse number 36, beginning. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, master. And then he gives the parable. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. The first thing we see is the setting. Jesus is going about his life in his ministry. He's preaching, he's teaching, and he's attracting a lot of a people's attention. Now, the Bible says the common people heard him gladly. They were happy to hear the things that Jesus was saying. Jesus is preaching a gospel of liberation liberating people from their the eternal consequences, at least, of their sins. He's blessing people's lives, performing miracles and so forth. He's elevating people, men and women, the poor and oppressed. They are hearing him gladly. But, of course, in his preaching, when you do that, that upsets the social order to some extent and degree, and some people are not all that excited with what he has to say. And among those who are not excited are the Pharisees. One of the Pharisees, a man named Simon, invites Jesus to his house for a meal. Now, this was a common thing in the ancient Near East. People would have these social gatherings where they'd invite folks. And if the people had resources, the people they'd invite would be sort of prominent folks and they'd have a dinner party. And so this man has invited Jesus for that purpose. Now, he's invited Jesus and also some of his brother Pharisees. So Jesus is at a Pharisee's house. That's not a typical place that we find him, but that's how he comes to be there. He's at a Pharisee's house and reclining at table. This sort of the the phrasing that's used for their sitting around the dinner table. It's a social setting. So we know why Jesus is there because he's been invited. Now listen to this in verse number 37. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learns that jesus is at this particular pharisee's house she comes and she brings an alabaster flask of ointment now we know why jesus is there she's he's been invited why is she there she's not been invited she's an interloper Now, she comes into the Pharisees' house, and you guys already know the Pharisees were the strictest sect among the Jews. She comes into the Pharisees' house because she's seeking Jesus, and she comes bearing gifts. She's got this alabaster flask of ointment. And when she sees Jesus, she goes to him, and the Bible says that she's weeping there at his feet. The term that's translated weeping here, I want you to pay attention. In John 11 and verse 35, the Bible says Jesus wept. You might translate that he shed a tear. That's not what's happening here. You see, in Matthew 26 and verse number 75, when Jesus is betrayed by Peter, that is he betrays him because he doesn't stay with him. He denies Jesus in the hour of Jesus need. He denies him. And when he realizes what he has done, the text says he went out and wept bitterly. It's a different word. He cried like a wounded animal when he realized what he had done. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 2, I believe it's verse number 18, that when the children of Israel are killed, you have the mother weeping, wailing like a wounded animal over the children of Israel who are slaughtered. That's the word that you see here. This woman goes to the Pharisee's house, a place where she knows she's not welcome. She has not been invited. She goes because she's looking for Jesus. She goes to his feet and in the middle of this dinner party, she's weeping and wailing like a wounded animal. So much so that the tears can fall from her face. And saturate Jesus' feet and she can take her hair, which obviously is not covered, and clean his feet with the hair of her head. Anybody think that would have caused a scene? Maybe would have attracted a little bit of attention. It does. Look at this. She's standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. That is this uh, expensive cruise of ointment that she's brought this gift and standing behind. (coughs) Sorry. And now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, that is Simon, he says to himself. If this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him for he she is a sinner. Now, that's how Luke introduces the woman. She's a woman of the city, a sinner. Text doesn't say what her sin is, but I'll tell you, it seems to suggest to me that she's guilty of some kind of sexual sin. That seems to be the suggestion to me. And I say that because, for one, her hair is publicly uncovered, which was not a common thing. And there is a there is a circumstance under which a woman in Israel's hair would be uncovered publicly. And that is if she was found guilty of adultery. I also think it suggests that she's culpable for some kind of sexual sin because the the Pharisee is concerned with her touching Jesus. That is to say, he could become unclean if she is unclean ceremonially. You know, you don't find this kind of a concern when somebody's guilty of lying. Touching someone would contaminate them. It doesn't matter necessarily what it is, but I do think that that that's the suggestion. She's publicly known as a sinner. She has her hair uncovered publicly, and the Pharisee is concerned that Jesus somehow or another could become contaminated by her touching him. Now, I want you to notice something. The man has invited Jesus into his home. Jesus is the guest of honor, but Jesus is sort of on display to be tested. He hasn't made his mind up about who Jesus is. He hasn't made his mind up about what Jesus is. He's suspicious at least. And now he thinks his suspicions are confirmed. Question. Is Jesus a prophet? Do we need to listen to him? He says, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what manner of woman this is. And he would not allow this woman to touch him. He's got Jesus on trial. Here's the thing. Jesus knows exactly who this woman is. He also knows exactly who Simon is. And so he confronts him. Verse 40 Jesus answers and says to him, Answers what? The man says to himself, He's thinking to himself, Jesus, he really can't be a prophet. I know some people are receiving him that way, but he can't be that way. He's thinking that to himself. And Jesus answers publicly the question he's raising privately. And so Jesus answers and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. I think uh, there are some things we could observe about Simon, some things that would not be very not be very flattering about Simon, but you know what? I like this about him. Jesus says, I have something to say. And you know what he says? Master, say it. I mean, when Jesus wants to start talking, you know what we ought to do? We just ought to be quiet. I see sometimes even in the church, you know, people get to talking and arguing and fussing and fighting. And I'm saying, you know what? Jesus has something to say on this. Maybe we should just pipe down and let Jesus say what he wants to say. We'd be better off. He says, Master, say it. And that's sort of the context for the parable. Now I want you to see the parable. Verse 41, a certain money lender or creditor has two debtors. One owes 500 denarii and another owes 50. So a denarius is a day's wages, you know, for a day labor. And he says one owes 500 and another owes 50. And uh, I think about this, you know, if you're in this kind of debt, I mean, that can weigh on you. You know, if you if you owe so much that if you worked every day, saving the weekend, you worked every day for two years, you would earn enough money to pay off your debt. But you haven't eaten anything. You haven't paid for a place to live. You haven't taken care of any of your other responsibilities. You could work every day for two years just to pay off your debt. That's a pretty onerous debt. And that'll weigh on you. You know, that's the kind of thing that can weigh on your mind that can bring a lot of stress into your life. Here's a person who owes five hundred. And another person owes 50. Now, if I have my math right, 50 is less than 500. 50 is a fraction of 500. But you know what it is, though, it's still a debt. And if you don't have the means to pay, I don't know how y'all do it in Huntsville. But where I come from, broke is broke, you know. And Jesus says, when the time comes to pay, neither of them could pay. See verse 42, when they could not pay, they're in the same boat, as best I can tell. He canceled the debt of both. The creditor, the uh, money lender, he doesn't owe these people anything. But he forgives the debt that each of them has. Because he's a kind and loving person who is inclined to forgive. He gives the one 500 because that's what they owe. He forgives the other 50 because that's what they owe. And then Jesus asked this question. Of these two, who do you believe will love the moneylender or the debtor more? Simon is uh, is an astute guy. This is not all that complicated. He says, I suppose. The one whom he canceled the larger debt, the one whom he forgave the most, I suppose that. And Jesus says, you have judged rightly, you suppose, right. Then he turns to the woman. He turns toward the woman and says to Simon, now listen, they're in the middle of this dinner party. The woman has made a spectacle of herself. And now Jesus has stopped the proceedings to ask this question, having given the parable. He's gotten the answer. And now he turns toward the woman. See, to this point, the woman is the center of attention, but nobody's really talking to her. They're just talking about her. Jesus turns to this woman and says to Simon, do you see this woman? I love that. There's something in the gospels that people sometimes overlook. Jesus has a certain care and concern and gives a certain degree of attention to women that in his society would have been uncommon. He has a way of holding people up who were sort of outcasts and marginalized as examples. And that's what he does here. Do you see this woman? And then he's going to compare this woman, this sinner, the one who's the object of scorn and derision. He's going to compare this woman and her behavior, her reception to Simon and his Pharisees and their behavior and their reception. Now, listen to it. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. It was a common courtesy in the ancient Near East when someone came to your home to provide the means for them to wash their feet. Yeah, I know sometimes people get caught up about foot washing and all that. But see, here's the point. The roads they used were not like the roads we used. They weren't paved and they didn't have asphalt and all that. And the livestock and the people used the same roads. I don't know anything about livestock but uh, they don't pull over to the sort of the side of the road and use the porta potty when they've got to go they just and people have to walk on those roads and if it was wet if it was muddy if there was refuse on the roads people had to walk through that And so when they got to someone's house, it was a common courtesy for a person to provide the means that they needed to to wash their feet. If a person didn't have a servant, you know, then they would be the servant themselves and they would do that. It was just a common courtesy. You know, it's like if somebody comes to your house and they've got their coat on and everything. Hey, can I take your coat? That's just a common courtesy. If you had resources, though, and you had servants, you didn't even have to do that yourself. You'd have someone else whose job it was to do that. Simon doesn't do it. Jesus is an invited guest in his home, but he doesn't observe this common courtesy. And Jesus juxtaposes his reception with the woman. Now, this woman is not even invited to be here. The woman is out of place while she's here, but she came into your house and you know what she saw? She saw that my feet needed to be washed. And you know what she did? She didn't bring a bunch of utensils. She didn't have a bowl of water. You know what she did? She cleaned my feet with the tears from her face and the hair on her head. You see the difference in the reception? Now, look at this. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. This also was just a common means of reception. When when two people would see one another, they would greet one another. They would kiss one another on the cheek, on the cheek, on the forehead. This was a common reception. But Jesus is invited to this man's house. And when he comes into this man's house, he doesn't receive Jesus that way. Now, that's the way you did it. It's not her house. She's an outcast socially. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet. Now, you couldn't kiss me on the cheek the way you would an equal. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You see the juxtaposition here. Then he says, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. She's got this alabaster cruise or flask of ointment. This is an expensive container designed to hold expensive ointment, perfume. And you know what? It was a common thing. When someone would come into another person's house, they would pour oil on their head and they wipe their hair with it. And this was a means of sanitation. This woman is using an expensive box of perfume to cleanse my feet. Now, question, why is she doing all of this? I mean, this all seems very elaborate and lavish. Why is she doing all of this? Another question. Why isn't he? Now, Jesus is going to make a comparison here. He says in verse number 47, therefore, I tell you her sins. Listen to it. Which are many. Luke characterizes her as a sinner. When Simon looks at her, what does he see? A sinner. And they're right. Jesus says her sins are many. But then he says her sins, which are many are forgiven. Then he tells us why. Because she loved much. Because she loves lavishly. And then he doesn't say a name, but look at the juxtaposition. He who loves little is forgiven little. Who loves little? She loves much. Simon loves little. And he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What is the point here? I mean, that's the story. That's what happened. What is the point? A lot of people, a lot of people will say they love Jesus. A lot of people will give lip service to that. And they may even, they may even have some tokens of esteem in terms of how they talk about him, how they deal with him, how they serve him. Some people will say with their mouths they love Jesus. But not everybody Not everybody loves him lavishly. And it makes a difference. Can I tell you that uh, at least part of our motivation for how we love God has to do with how we see ourselves? The person who is self-righteous, thinks, well, I, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as the next guy. I know that I've made some mistakes, but I've sort of never killed anybody, so I'm not that bad off. I mean, I kind of need a savior, but just, you know, just a little, I don't need a lot of saving, just a little saving, somebody to kind of close the gap for me. That person doesn't love God as lavishly because they do not believe they need a savior to the same extent and degree as someone else. They look at themselves and they think, well, I owe 50 denarii. I do have a debt I can't pay, but it's not that big a debt. Some people who are saved do not realize that they have been rescued from the depths of hell because they do not think they're that bad on their own. But you know what? If you're broke, you're broke. You know what? If you owe and can't pay, you are destitute. Some people don't see themselves that way. But there are other people who have lived riotous lives, notorious and open sinners, who have sinned in ways that are salacious and scandalous so that other people would dare not be in their company. You know the benefit that they have. They know who and what they are. And so when they come to God, when they come to Jesus, having wrestled with the consequences of their sin, when their hearts are broken and they come to Jesus' feet and they weep and wail like wounded animals, they tend to love more passionately. You've never seen it. I have seen that. You think about a man like the Apostle Paul. Why was he so diligent? Sacrificial. Why was he so committed? Why was he so fervent in his service? He would say of himself. I was the chief of sinners. I don't know how to do the comparison. But I can tell you something. When a person looks at their own lives and they see the extent of the debt they owe to God and then they are rescued. They tend to be more thankful. They tend to be more grateful. They tend to be more passionate. They tend to be more lavish in their love. Now, here's what I'd like you to think about. Don't worry about everybody else. See, don't take inventory of everybody else. I would like you to think about your own life. Who and what you were before Jesus forgave forgave you. What do you see? A lot of you have the benefit of having grown up in the church. That's the language that we use, but you know what I mean, growing up in the shadow of the church, the influence of the church, and so forth. A lot of you have that benefit. It's a blessing. And I think that's got to be the way we would want it to be. I mean, my children are growing up in the shadow of the church. I mean, that's what we would want for our children, but can I tell you that there is sometimes a danger in that? We can't make a clear distinction sometimes in our own minds about being saved and not being saved. Sometimes when we grow up in an environment like that, we think, well, we're okay. I mean, I know at some point I've got a box over there I've got to check, and if I can just check that, but I was okay before that, but I'll just check the box. And now, see, and then when you go through life like that, you can take for granted. You don't really realize who and what you are outside of Christ. And you take someone else, and I was like this, and I mean, I was like this. I grew up in the world. Okay, I grew up just doing whatever I thought was best. And sometimes I had the right idea and a lot of times I had the wrong idea. And I was a grown man. I was 27 years old when I was introduced to the truth, when I started reading the Bible for myself. And when I would compare how I was thinking and how I was living with what I was reading in the Bible. Do you know what I saw? I saw a man who was broken and destitute outside of Christ a man without hope in the world. It didn't matter what everybody else saw. Somebody else would look at me and say, well, he's got this degree of education and he's got this kind of job and he's doing all right in life. And listen, I didn't matter what everybody else saw. I saw what God saw. See, and I let it break me. That's what it means to be converted. And because of that. Everything had to change. Everything. I think it's better for people. To have that moment of clarity. And I just say I've just in talking to people, I think sometimes we don't have it, but I tell you, it makes a difference. And so if you've never had it, I'm inviting you to really think about who and what you are without Christ. It's healthy because you don't want to underestimate just how much you need a Savior. If you underestimate just how much you need a Savior, it will sap you of some of the fervor that you need to love Jesus The way he deserves to be loved. There's nothing wrong. With loving Jesus so much. That you'll make a spectacle of yourself. Around people who don't love him quite as passionately as you do. I said to you. That when Jesus. When he gives these parables, what he's what he's doing is he setting down a circumstance that, that anybody can see, anybody can understand? Okay, Simon sees. It's not that hard. The person who's been forgiven the most, well, they're probably going to love more passionately. That, everybody can see that. They, they feel a greater sense of relief. They feel a greater sense of gratitude. They were under no delusions that they could sort of make their way out of it on their own. And so they're more indebted. They're more invested. Anybody can see that. Now, Simon has to make the application, though, to the spiritual part. And that's why Jesus says, you see, this woman, her sins are forgiven because she loved much, because she realized just how much she needed Jesus. She loved much. She loved desperately. He gives this story. He's making this application. And I said to you that when he does that, he's inviting us to do something. And he's telling us something about the character of God also. What is he inviting us to do? He's inviting us to love God passionately, desperately with everything that we have, shamelessly. Why would we do that? Because God forgives. There is a connection between our recognition of just how much God has forgiven us and how we love him and serve him. There is a connection. When I look at this parable, it is one of my favorites. I've sort of been sharing some of the ones that I consider my favorites. There are several things that stand out to me. The hero in this story is a woman who is a known sinner. She would not have been a hero to the other people, At the dinner party. But Jesus lifts her up and extols her as an example for everybody to follow. Sometimes we don't see what God sees when we look at other people in the kingdom. The hero is not necessarily the one who's preaching the sermon, it's not necessarily the one who is serving as an elder or who's getting all kinds of attention. The hero is not necessarily the one who has a big name in the brotherhood. Sometimes the hero is a woman who's sitting in the back of the building all by herself, who's desperately in love with God because of what Jesus has done for us. And she sits quietly on the back pew. And her heart breaks every time. She partakes of the Lord's Supper and remembers what Jesus has done. We don't see it the way God sees it, but I'm saying to you, maybe we ought to see some of that and be inspired by that. The hero in the story is a woman who everybody knew was a sinner. A second thing, Jesus confronts Simon, not because Simon is a bad guy, Not because he's a bad guy, but because he wants Simon to see what he's missing. And sometimes it's good for us to be confronted like that. I mean, we go through life and we're we're sort of. Showing up to all the things that are going on and we're doing our best, we think, and we're we're going through all the appropriate motions and so forth. And so if somebody is just looking on the surface, like you look at these Pharisees on the surface, they might think, "Well, wow, this guy is a faithful Christian, you know. But every now and again, when somebody loves us, you know what they'll do? They'll show us the one thing that we're missing. And that's what Jesus does for Simon. And I'm I'm hoping. That maybe. That's how this resonates with you. See, I, I don't know you well enough to try to accuse you of anything. And if I did, I probably wouldn't accuse you of anything. I just kind of maybe invite you to think about something. But what I'm inviting you to do is to look at yourself. When is the last time you were moved to tears? Because you realized who you are without outside, outside of Christ And you realize just what Jesus did for you, the awesome price that he paid, because here's the thing. Jesus doesn't love us halfway. Did you hear what I said? He doesn't love us halfway. He gave it all. And that's what he deserves from us in return. He confronts Simon about his own shortcoming, what he's seeing in his mind. But pardon is available to Simon the same way it's made available to this woman. Simon has to sort of have a reorientation of his thinking, though. See, he thinks he only owes 50. Well, the truth is he probably owes 500. 500 we classify sins we kind of categorize sins and we grade sins and we think some sins are this and some sins are that and maybe maybe there's some merit to that i mean i think some things seem to be more egregious than others but can i tell you that broke is still broke i think we'd be better off if we all imagined ourselves as the person who owes 500 because no matter what the bill is, if you can't pay it, see, then you're spiritually bankrupt. No one needs a savior more than I do. No one has ever needed a savior more than you do. And if you'll wrestle with that, if you'll live your life acknowledging that, you'll love Jesus more lavishly more passionately and we should because he forgives wrestle with who you are outside of Christ don't grade yourself on a curve wrestle with who you are outside of Christ and let it renew your vigor and your enthusiasm and your love for the fact that God has allowed you to be in Christ at westhuntsville.org.